Support for this podcast comes from Outdoor Supply Hardware, inviting listeners to OSHA's big anniversary sale celebration, May 20th through the 26th, featuring daily deals, $15,000 in giveaways, 20% off store-wide on Saturday and Sunday, and a lot more. Learn more at OSH.com. Hi there, I'm Randa Abdel-Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Support for the California Report comes from Barracuda Networks, cloud generation firewalls engineered for today's modern globally dispersed networks. Learn more at barracuda.com slash firewalls. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems. And by Paint Care. Through Paint Care, paint manufacturers make it easier for households and businesses to recycle leftover house paint, with over 800 convenient drop off locations around California. On today's California Report magazine, we meet a new mom with postpartum depression who went to her doctor's office for help, but that's not what she got. The police showed up, and that's the word that everybody kept using is, they're going to escort you. They're going to escort you. We also talk with L.A. musician Inara George about her newest album, each song a love letter to people in her life who've passed away. Plus, a DACA recipient rides out the uncertainty by focusing on what's really important in her life. I'm going to keep being human, and I'm going to keep giving back, and I'm going to keep loving, and I'm going to keep growing. I'll just continue to move forward, whatever that looks like. And would you drink genetically modified beer if you knew it helped conserve water? I'm Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. We're going to start our show today with the story of a woman who's the daughter of farm workers in Bakersfield. Now she's climbing the corporate ranks in the high-powered world of finance in San Francisco. She was able to do that in part because of a program that's now at the center of the immigration debate, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA. And she's grappling with her uncertain future, much the way you might prepare for an earthquake or a natural disaster by focusing on the things she can control. KQED's Farida Javala Romero brings us her story. The first time I met Janet Medina was last September, just days after the Trump administration announced it was facing out DACA. She and a dozen other Latina philanthropists in San Francisco were talking about how to respond to the news. Okay, so my name's Janet Medina, and I work at Bank of the West. And... This is really personal for me because I am a DACA recipient myself. Janet tells the group her first move was to go see executives at her bank. She asked, Where do you stand? Do you support me? If you do, how do you support me? She says the CEO ended up writing a statement saying that the bank stood by its DACA employees. I was really proud to just kind of stand up and be like, we need a, you know, 
We need to speak up. Next, it's Claudia Hernandez's turn to speak. She works as a project manager at Facebook. The president's DACA decision saddens her because it affects a lot of people she knows. So she's contacting members of Congress. And I hold myself accountable now to calling every single week for the next six months to, to ask for something permanent. Both women are the same age, 26. Both came to the U.S. with their parents from Mexico as kids. They grew up in California with little money. Janet in Bakersfield, Claudia in San Jose. Now the two women are roommates. She's amazing. She's my best friend, and, and we've been through so much together. We actually met at Mills our first year. That's Mills College in Oakland. Both worked hard to land scholarships and graduate. They launched their careers, and now they're donating money to Bay Area nonprofits. Claudia says they want to give others the kind of support they received. I'm a product of all that help. That's why I want to give back now because I know that so many people need it. For all their similarities, the roommates have one major difference. While Janet is fearful of losing her DACA status, Claudia is now a U.S. citizen. That's because she was able to become a permanent resident years ago. So regardless of what Congress or the president decide on immigration, she can keep her job. She won't be deported. She can even travel outside the country without fear that she might not make it back. That's why when I headed to their place a few days ago... Hey, hey, hey. Hi. <laughs> Claudia wasn't there. Yeah, yeah. Claudia went to Mexico to visit some family. I'll miss her, but that's okay. <laughs> it's Sunday morning, and Janet's making oatmeal for breakfast. She may not know what her long-term future holds, but she's planned out what she's having for breakfast every day next week. Oatmeal she keeps in her fridge and individual mason jars. It's something in her life she can control. The other thing she's doing if she can't keep her job when her DACA permit expires in less than a year? Saving money. Her recent promotion at work and pay raise will help. She's now a vice president in national strategy at the bank. Been working longer hours, but I'm just really happy with this new team. I think it was a good move. I think it was a good career move. She says she's watching immigration news, but she's determined not to panic. I like to prepare and think about, you know, if, 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 if this were to happen, what are you going to do next? How can I best prepare so that I can continue to support myself and to continue to support my family? Janet's parents still wake up at 3 a.m. to pick oranges, mandarins, and other crops. They live in a trailer on a ranch where Janet's dad is a foreman. She and her two brothers, who also have DACA, are helping them buy a property where they can retire. So I feel like everything that we do is very closely knitted, and, and it's always to thinking about each other. So the president's latest proposal that would grant citizenship to dreamers like herself but bar her from helping her parents become legal residents? My driver is my family, you know, so if you're not including my family in, in these decisions, then I just don't feel like that's right or fair. Janet picks up her phone and calls her dad like she does every weekend. Bueno. Hola, papi, ¿cómo estás? Janet's parents didn't want their names used because her father overstayed his tourist visa. But Janet's mom says their dream is that their kids get the opportunity to fulfill their potential. 
nuestros sueños aquí pues son que se realicen nuestros hijos. She says she's sad, but she's praying for her family and the more than 11 million undocumented immigrants in the country so that they can have a good future. Vamos a seguir nosotros orando como padres para que todas las familias que están aquí pues puedan tener un futuro bien. We shouldn't lose hope, she says. When Janet Medina contemplates losing DACA and what a setback it could be for her whole family, she reminds herself of an old Mexican proverb. They tried to bury us, but they didn't know we were seeds. And that's so powerful, because it's true. It's true. You know, you, you, you want to attack my humanity? That's a reflection of you, not me. I'm going to keep being human, and I'm going to keep giving back, and I'm going to keep loving. I'll just continue to move forward, whatever that looks like. She has to trust that she and her family will figure it out together, as they've always done. For the California Report, I'm Farida Jabbala Romero. If the world's a stage, I won't go away. I'll just keep living and dying and living. Inara George was born into the music business. Her dad, Lowell George, was the founder of the Los Angeles 70s rock band Little Feet. And she's followed her own path as an artist with her band The Bird and the Bee. Her new solo album, her third, is called Dearest Everybody. And the songs revisit the loss of her father and the changing perspective that comes with growing older. She joins us now from Los Angeles. Inara George, welcome to the California Report magazine. Thank you so much. So your dad died when you were very young. I understand his wake was on the same day as your fifth birthday. Yes. So obviously it's a it's a big memory for you, but how do you think the loss shaped you and, and what made you want to make this record now? Um, even though I feel very settled and comfortable knowing that I, I don't have a father. And I think in my musical career, I've, I've always been open about talking about him and, and I'm very proud to be his daughter, but always wanting to kind of pave my own way and, and make music that reflected me. And so I think now as I get older and seeing my children and, and realizing when they go through those birthdays that I went through, um, five specifically, I felt finally comfortable delving into it in a way that I had never done before. You talk about your father on the first single, a song called Young Adult. I was the daughter of my father I was the color of a half-lit moon Riding down sunset Making records at night There's a calling in my gut And I have to just follow it this song I sort of think of it as like um, it's my musical story and I think when I started out um, you know when you're the, the daughter of or the son of somebody and especially in a field that you're going into you for a long time are always that you're the daughter of somebody and so mm -hmm. I think when I started out in music that's who I was and so I think that was sort of the, the thought of the song is I was like a it was my it's my my first experience with music and and then slowly rolling out who I was, who I wanted to be and, and how I wanted to express myself. Where this 
I know you've described some of the songs on the new album as love songs for people who aren't here anymore. I mean, commemorating the deaths of people close to you. But there are also some songs like Release Me, which sounds like it's a plea from somebody who is left behind. I will always love you But never will I forgive you For being gone for so long My mom was turning 70, and I'd been writing these songs for, for friends, these sort of love songs to people who'd been left behind or were, were leaving the, the earth, the planet, and I... I don't know, I thought I would write a song uh, for my mom and someone who, who was left behind. And I think for a long time it's, it's kind of been a, a struggle for her. When you've been with somebody who's larger than life, um, even though you feel like you're moving on, it's, people don't always let you do that. very honest and emotional and, and sometimes uncomfortable, but I've discovered about myself is um, if you're not uncomfortable, I don't think it's not necessarily worth doing all the time, you know. I remember the first time we played these songs in front of an audience, I was really nervous. I was nervous about it being so forthcoming about my own experiences. And then once I played them, it was actually really cathartic. And especially because I feel like death is something that I've experienced a lot in my life from a young age and and it's painful and hard but sometimes it's very beautiful and and just as important to uh, celebrate I think than birth is you're going to be playing some live shows soon including at the noise pop festival in San Francisco is there a particular song that you're looking forward to playing live from the new album it's funny I just had a rehearsal last night with my I have a small all-girl band and the one that we had so much fun playing last night was slow dance Getting older can be complicated, and it's it's not that I don't think that you can still be fun-loving and spontaneous and dance like there's no tomorrow, but there is a difference in, in the way, in who we are and how we grow and, and how we age, and I think that was kind of the idea of the song, is that sort of this painful feeling of moving forward and growing and like sort of leaving this younger version of ourselves behind. Inara George, thanks so much for joining us on the California Report magazine. Thank you. I had a lovely time. Inara George's new album is called Dearest Everybody. If you're tuning into the Super Bowl this weekend, you might be watching the game with a pint of beer in your hand. But I bet you don't know just how much water went into making that brew. Try 11 gallons just to grow the hops. We're going to meet a biologist now who wants to replace those hops with genetically engineered yeast. 
Would you drink GMO beer to save water? Sarah Craig has our story. Charles Denby and I walk into a steamy room filled with steel machines bubbling with liquid. We're in the brewery at UC Davis. Here's a little Beer 101. All beer is made from water, barley, yeast, and hops. But instead of using hops, Denby's created yeast that will mimic hoppy flavors. He opens a box containing those samples and pours them into four huge fermenters. All right, here we go. All right. The coolest thing about a setup like this is that you can make several batches of beer with the exact same recipe, isolating a single variable. In this case, that variable is the yeast that we're using. The point of all this? Hops are vulnerable to climate change, and they need a lot of water. Most of the nation's hops, and many of California's, are grown in one valley in the state of Washington. And that area is expected to have less water because of higher temperatures and intense drought. If we could eliminate you know, a large chunk of the hops that are used, that would also eliminate trillions of liters of water that are spent in the, the process of growing hops. Denby was never a big beer drinker, but after his friend gave him a home brewing kit a few years ago, he got into the science behind it. His interest in brewing and a PhD in genetics led him to make a discovery. I was literally sitting in the bathtub. I was reading this textbook about brewing science. And he found out how to create the molecules that give hops their hoppy flavor by using genes from mint and basil and then combining them with yeast cells. I got really excited by that because I realized that I would easily be able to engineer these biosynthetic pathways into the microbes that make beer. Right now, he's the only scientist using GMO yeast to make beer. But getting that beer to market is tricky because GMOs carry some heavy baggage. I have friends and family who do have concerns about genetic engineering and they only eat things that are GMO-free. Companies like Monsanto have made GMO crops resistant to pesticides that kill weeds. But these pesticides also kill animals. And in many cases, they drift to nearby farms and kill non-GMO crops. For Denby's research, there's a concern that GMO yeast could escape and alter yeast in the wild. Plus, there are no rules that say GMO products must be safe to eat or drink. There's only a voluntary process by which scientists can test their GMO creations themselves and then ask the FDA for approval. Denby will submit his results this fall. Our sensory lab is kind of back in the middle of nowhere. In the meantime, Denby also wants to make sure his beer actually tastes good. I meet up with him at the Sensory Lab at Lagunitas, a Sonoma County brewery. Brian Donaldson, an expert taster, leads him through the process. So let's get you signed in. Sort of feels like I'm at the doctor's office. <laughs> Denby sits down in a private booth. A blue light comes on, and a small door slides open. A woman on the other side hands him a tray with four samples of his beer. Three are from his GMO yeast, and the fourth is the control. He picks up the first glass and takes a sip. Yeah, it tastes like beer. It's a good start. <laughs> After tasting them all, Denby pushes back his chair and breathes. They actually taste good. I've been nervous all day, um, all week, and I feel like a pretty profound sense of relief. I guess the next thing that I'm nervous about is, is it going to be perceived 
by the general public or the you know a, a group of expert tasters as well? Or is it going to be just in my mind? As we leave the lab, Brian, the expert taster, weighs in. I got some some fruity notes off a couple of them. So the one was like straight up Fruit Loops. Yeah. Uh, and then one was kind of orangey, like yeah. orange blossoms. Uh-huh. Charles Denby's next step is to get brewing companies to actually bottle his beer. This biologist has also turned into a brewer himself. He's setting up his own brewery and wants to experiment with new flavors, like passion fruit, gooseberry, and broom flower. He says by using genetically engineered yeast instead of real hops, beer can taste like anything. For the California Report, I'm Sarah Craig. If you're a parent, you know having a new baby can be really hard. You don't know what you're doing. You don't sleep. You're not getting along with your partner. It was true for me. I had postpartum depression. And when you're down like that, it's really hard to get through it. In this next story, we're going to meet a new mom who goes to a women's clinic in Sacramento for help. But that's not what she gets. Her name is Jessica Porton, and she has two daughters, Luna and Kira. She talks about what happened four months after giving birth to her youngest. I knew that I had postpartum depression and was just trying a ton of home remedies until I could see the doctor. But I was still having these fits of anger, irritability, impatience, and like violent thoughts. I, I did not hit my children. I don't spank my children. Um, that's just who I am as a parent. But I wanted to, you know, and that's how it was manifesting. I was never afraid that I was going to, but I didn't want those thoughts in my head. And that's why I chose to seek help from a doctor. I never actually saw a doctor. I saw a nurse practitioner. At the very beginning, I kind of summarized what I wanted to take care of in the appointment. I said I needed a pelvic exam because a doctor had not looked at me since I had given birth. And I wanted to talk about postpartum depression. I briefly described my symptoms and said that I wanted to talk about medication options and therapy. I described, you know, maybe hitting myself or squeezing the baby too tight. But I was very adamant through the entire appointment that I was not going to hurt myself and I was not going to hurt my children. I could tell she was scared when I told her my symptoms. It seemed to me that she heard this trigger word, violent thoughts, and I could almost see at that moment that she stopped listening to me and she was making plans at that point and that she had already decided then that the authorities needed to be contacted. And I was scared before the police got there because I knew at that moment that there was a pretty strong possibility that they were going to commit me for um, observation to make sure that I wasn't a risk to myself. Bye. Bye. And the, the police showed up. They were very nice. They were very respectful. And so they can either put you on a hold immediately or escort you to the emergency room and let them decide. And that's the word that everybody kept using is they're going to escort you. They're going to escort you. And I'm, I'm taken in. Again, everybody else is super nice. They're helping me with my uh, car seat. They're helping me with my diaper bag. When I'm getting my blood drawn, a nurse holds my baby. It's like everybody knows that I'm not crazy. Everybody knows that this is normal, but they're following protocol. Everybody was protecting their own liability instead of thinking of me. 
after my husband showed up and they uh, took us to a room. We're just sitting in the room and we just wait and wait and wait and rock the baby, try to get her to sleep, nurse the baby, try to get her to sleep. And I kept being told that, you know, in a couple hours and a couple hours and a couple hours, and the next thing I know, it had been almost six hours. So uh, a social worker comes in, interviews me, and it's just a lot of really in-depth questions. Who my friends are, who my family is, who is available, am I ever alone with the children, things of that nature to make sure that me and the kids are, are both safe. After she decides that I don't need to be committed, she says, I'll be right back with some resources. So she comes back with a stack of papers. These are some hotline phone numbers. You need to call your general practitioner. And so then we leave this emergency room and I'm expected to do all of this. Like as a society, we need to be lifting up our mothers and we need to have outreach for the perinatal parts of women's lives. Jessica Porton's story was produced by the California Reports health reporter, April Demboski. She called Jessica's doctor's office, capital OBGYN, but they declined to comment. A spokesman for Sutter Health, where she was taken to the ER, said hospital staff followed strict safety protocols. Since sharing her story, Jessica has connected with an advocacy group. Now she's helping to promote a package of bills in Sacramento to improve mental health care for new moms in California. A place called... What? 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 Como? What? Getting directions to Colinka. And now for the next installment in our series, A Place Called What? About California Places with Bizarre or Surprising Names. Colinga is the biggest town to make our list so far. It's got a population of a little more than 16,000 people. We called up Bill Morris, a volunteer docent at the R.C. Baker Museum there. He's lived in Colinga for 65 years, and he knows a lot about the town's unusual name. Oil definitely made Colinga. In the 1870s, 1880s, coal was found in this area. And there were several coal mines in the, the hills. At first, it was loaded out by mule teams, horses. And in 1888, they ran the railroad up into the edge of the hills. And they had coaling stations along where they loaded the coal out on the rail cars. And they had coaling station A, B, and C. Coaling station A became the name of the town. They just call it Coaling A instead of Coaling Station A. Uh, by that time, coal was kind of on its way out and oil was taken over. So uh, if it wasn't for the oil, Klinga probably wouldn't even be here. It'd probably be just uh, a grassland for the cattle to feed on. Klinga grows on you, that's for sure. You know, I like it. It's, uh, you don't have to worry about traffic. Although we are a town of, of about uh, 16,000 people now. But uh, it's just a good place to live. 
That conversation with Bill Morris was produced by Bianca Taylor. You can send us your ideas for California places with unusual names. Drop us a note at calreport at kqed.org. We've been getting a lot of good suggestions, so keep them coming. And that's the California Report magazine, a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our director is Bianca Taylor. Our technical producer is Seal Muller with additional engineering from Katie McMurrin. Victoria Malion is our senior editor. Our online producer is David Marks. And our social media producer is Miranda Leitzinger. Our intern is Nadine Sabai. Our team also includes Susie Racho, Taiki Hendricks, Ingrid Becker, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Sasha Koka. Thanks for listening. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from the James Irvine Foundation, expanding economic and political opportunity for Californians who are working but struggling with poverty. More at irvine.org. Block Construction, a builder committed to enhancing communities in the Bay Area and Central Coast. B-L-A-C-H dot com. Block Construction. Together, building greatness. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out the Bay Curious book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.